You know, it's not just Mila Kunis stamping a barrel as some sort of ploy. It's people who really do have something to say and they're saying it and they're saying it very clearly. Uh, and I'm really grateful that I'm starting to uh, understand how to make my product speak and also how to talk about my company in a, in a way that I believe is honest and authentic and also genuinely uh, interesting. Everyone, welcome back to Creative How, the podcast for curious creatives. Jed, you know, you hear a lot about the craft brewing industry, this and that, and all these different uh, brewers popping up here and there. But what you don't hear a lot about is the craft distilling movement. And that is the most up and coming market. And one of the epicenters here is Maryland, uh, where, you know, distilling is a has a long history here, but it kind of went away for a while and it's only being rediscovered. And one of those guys spearheading that is Max Lentz. Max is the CEO of Baltimore Spirits Company. And he's a bit of a renaissance man. Um, something we learned through this whole process was the creativity that goes into their process and their spirits is unparalleled. And Max goes into great detail about this during the podcast. So listen up and have fun, folks. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to another episode. We are actually coming to you today from Baltimore Spirits Company in the heart of Amden Medfield, which I feel like is the forefront of the craft distilling movement here in Maryland and with the CEO of Baltimore Spirits Company. How's it going, guys? Max, Max. welcome aboard. Happy to be here. We're glad you're here. So let's fire this whole thing up back where it all began. Give us a little bit of a summary of your childhood. Let's start there. <laughs> childhood. Grew up in Texas. Uh, had a big family. We were terribly misbehaved went through you know kind of kind of spent all the way through high school in houston graduated moved to california for uh, about a year uh went to whittier college out there went back to houston went to university of houston and then transferred up to goucher college which is just north of baltimore it's how i ended up here um went up there uh to pursue i was trying to be on track to get my philosophy phd which uh was my major but didn't end up doing any post-grad studies in Moved into the city the year after college to kind of think about it for a year. Uh, fell in love with Baltimore. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And now I'm distilling alcohol in the city. Yeah, you left out a lot. I know that. I know that much. Well, let's go back to something. Why philosophy? Oh, why philosophy? Um, man, I had a better answer for that 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't have a single regret about about doing philosophy. And I think more, more people should do it. Uh, i I'm a very strong believer in, in a liberal arts education versus vocational education. Um, I think you should graduate college a more completely educated person that gives you the tools to learn the things you need for a job, right? And I kind of believe in that kind of classic life path more than, I mean, most people don't kind of have nearly enough education coming out of high school to jump into career training and never learn any broad educational stuff after that. So I think college should be another four years of kind of rigorous um, education for history, arts, thinking. I mean, philosophy is kind of the, a really distilled version of that in its own measure. Uh, it kind of just teaches you how to think. And even though you're certainly learning a lot of history of thought and all this stuff, the uh, the material is so difficult for the most part that uh, you can't you can't do it without kind of coming out a different person. So you came here to Baltimore and that's where you met your partners. Uh, I did actually met, um, so I grew up with Ian, uh, my two partners. We grew up in Houston together. 
Okay. Uh, so we met when we were 12, uh, parted ways in college. Uh, and then when I was living in Baltimore, he had started doing some IT consultant kind of entry level stuff, but he's still the way his job works is they put him on projects on location. And during the weekend, they'll fly him wherever because they're going to move him around. So rather than asking someone to relocate their whole life, the idea is they can fly you home on the weekends or whatever. So uh, he would take that opportunity to come visit a bunch of his old friends. So he visited me in Baltimore a number of times when he took a project over in London, he left his car here. And when he was heading back from London, uh, I had a room opening up in my house. He didn't have anywhere, anywhere better to be for his kind of home base. So he decided to move in and, and that was the house in which we, uh, hatched the grand distillery plan. It really didn't take very long of us uh, spending a lot of time together for it to come up. Uh, Eli and I met at Goucher. And then when I moved into the city, uh, we ended up moving in together and living together. So I've lived with both my partners. Um, and we, when Eli and I were living together, we uh, learned to homebrew. And then we got really, really serious about homebrew. And that was about 11 years ago. Define home, uh, like serious. Like what, what is that? Uh, we were doing probably about 10 gallons a week at one point. Uh, what were you doing with it? Just drinking it yourself? House parties. House parties. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we were we were supplying the entirety of Charles Village with kegs for house parties. Wow. Uh, we were kegging at that point, not bottling. We started bottling and we started kegging. That seems serious. We I know from, little about homebrewing. I, I, yeah. I literally didn't know you could keg. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it's just I wish I could it's so keg. much better in so many ways. Was there it's branding easy. at this point? No branding. Uh, we did name each individual beer, though, especially the repeat recipes. Yeah. Uh, and we we hollowed out a little mini fridge in our living room and had it turned it into a little kegerator. So if you were in our house, there was always some homebrew keg in the fridge. So there's essentially just free beer on tap. So you guys became legendary, basically. Uh, we certainly. So Eli finally got a job as a professional brewer uh, and it was out in Reno. So he actually left Baltimore for two years and his going away party. I think we had seven kegs of beer that was all homebrew and it was all just way too high ABV and like really, really intense uh, styles. And we had, I think that party was legendary. I don't think anyone rem remembers the beer or much of the party. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like fun. Um, so Max, you talked about falling in love with Baltimore. Now this is obviously a global podcast, as you well know, but we are located headquartered in Baltimore. <laughs> And so I'm curious to know what you were doing um, from a career standpoint, from a making money standpoint for those years between college and, and, and Baltimore Spirits Company. Between college and Baltimore Spirits Company, when I made the bulk of my money, <laughs> um, I uh, worked retail, uh, selling musical equipment on commission. I walked dogs. I uh, bust. I waited and then I bartended and then I bar managed. Uh, those were in a row, uh, played music around town. Uh, but I guess the kind of, when I moved into Baltimore, what really kept me here, uh, was the creative scene. And this is actually, this is a great re like reason for you guys to be based in Baltimore. Cause I feel like there's a whole lot of people with just super high level creative energy in the city. And when I moved into town, a lot of my friends were super involved in the the dance scene and the music scene and the theater scene, um, the visual arts scene. And it was kind of so inspiring to see people with super limited means pulling off very large projects. You know, Eli was a founding member of the Baltimore Rock Opera Society. And so the first production that they put on was a four hour 
epic that uh, is fairly indescribable, um, but entirely built by community. They sold out every night for like a week and just had hundreds and hundreds of people packing this theater for no reason. None of them had theater experience. A good friend of mine founded a, a dance collective that still perseveres after probably been 10 years since it was founded, which is a long time for, you know, a post-college dance company to uh, to maintain in, in an urban environment, um, but they're still killing it. Uh, and all this stuff was just super amazing. And I was surrounded by it. And uh, when you spend that much time in a creative scene with so much energy floating around it, it really, you don't just want to be a consumer of all the creativity. You want to be a producer. So all of my jobs were always in kind of a pursuit of something greater, kind of a giving back to Baltimore, being part of the creative energy and trying to kind of incorporate that into my life as a creator. So when I was working at uh, the music shop, I wanted to play in a band. And when I left to go walk dogs, it was so I could devote more time to playing uh, and also so that I wouldn't hate music so much. <laughs> you work in a music right. shop and you're surrounded by 12-year-old kids squealing guitars uh, all day. It makes it hard to play guitar when you get home. Um, <laughs> And when I started uh, busing, it was because I was thinking about opening a bar, you know, like a bar entertainment music venue in the city and kind of giving back in that way. And so I started busing. I actually took that job for free because I had no service industry experience and I was a little huh. old to be jumping in. Um, so I quit my second round at the music shop and started busing for free, uh, fairly confident that I could land a sweet job busing at Power Plant. <laughs> uh, if I stuck to it. So bust for free for a while. Um, then they picked me up as a busser. Then I went to waiter. Then I went to bartender. And then I finally got moved to a uh, bar manager, um, which was great experience. But I, you know, took a big pay cut uh, to go there. And it was kind of during the bar management days when I was still kind of plugging away at this bar business plan that the distillery idea uh, came up between Ian and I. And then once kind of everybody's heads were in it and we had kind of thought, hey, this isn't a um, a stretch. We, we might be able to do this. We should look into the plan. Once we kind of casually started poking around with it, it was just a matter of weeks before we were so, so deep into it, way further than I was in the bar plan. Um, and all that was like your education. Like you just got talked about, like, you know, that specific, like you were sort of getting that experience along the way, which now is now paying off and in your role at Baltimore Spirits Company, right? All that education you banked, um, during those bar management days. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, from, from the philosophy degree to knowing what it's like to sell things for a living and, and kind of having to make the sale, right. um, to, to walk in dogs on 4th of July, which is a nightmare. And learning uh, distribution too, right? Learning I mean, distribution, that's, right. That's, so that's a complicated though, certainly for Maryland. Certainly also, in right? terms of the team, um, you know, Eli has now been a professional brewer for five years. Um, so obviously he had really large scale industrial size fermentation and production stuff. Uh, so that was great. And my, you know, I did have a lot of product knowledge, distribution knowledge, understanding of how bars worked, what they wanted, how cocktail lists were created and all that stuff. So um, certainly uh, kind of a big part of the bonus experience. And that, and that's what makes it work. So just so real quick, I think we, we just jumped ahead. We assumed everybody knew the team. But if you want to run down, uh, I guess, the team here uh, real quick, we can kind of get everybody familiar with them. Yeah. Um, so the founders, people that were there day one of production, uh, myself, uh, Eli Breitberg Smith, who is my, uh, co-founder, chief of operations, head distiller, uh, head janitor, 
head taster, head noser, head blender. And we've kind of talked about him a little bit. Yep. Uh, and then Ian, who known for 25 years now, almost creeping up on 25. Um, CFO was a music major, music performance. He's a, he's a very good bassoonist. If anyone needs a bassoonist, I think if you had caught him a couple of years ago, you could have put him in a symphony. Uh, and now you could probably give him, give him two weeks to practice. He'll be there. Um, but he's, he was also a finance major, um, just amazing dude with numbers. So he's our CFO. He keeps the book. He keeps his uh, IT job as well. But he was there day one, and he puts in uh, all the after hours and weekend work uh, that he can. So he's really essential as well. It's interesting because you, on your website, um, you know, you talk about the team and you list the guys you just mentioned as the musician, the philosopher, and the anthropologist. And it's uh, it matches the dress of the tone of the, the copy that you guys have written on the site. And it's just interesting storytelling, I think, that brings some kind of tone to the distillery more than just like, here's the CFO, here's the CEO, and here's the, here's the COO. Well, there's something about uh, alcohol production that played well. And that, you know, that was a little bit, it was poetic and maybe a little overly so for the site, but I really kind of fell in love with the idea because uh, I'm not sure if it's a coincidence or not that I think all of our kind of education backgrounds play into this liquor history, right? It is an anthropological study when you're doing rye in Maryland again, which we do, um, knowing what history you're partaking in uh, and how that's expressed. And also alcohols distilled all over the world. And there's such intense traditions around the world of how, it, how it's done. We've gone um, into depth in a number of these different histories, um, figuring out not only production method, but kind of the classic ways to drink these things and how they fit into culture. Because we really like to uh, include kind of global liquor distilling cultures when we're thinking about new ideas and stuff. It's all kind of part of our palette. So, so we've done quite a bit of that in the anthropological sense. And there's a bit of uh, creativity and musicianship to just creating well-rounded spirits, right? They can't just be uh, one-note songs, if you will. They have to be complicated. They have to work with one another. Our whole portfolio has to work with one another. And the kind of understanding of how a lot of moving parts can kind of come together and create a nice harmony uh, is, if nothing else, a very good metaphor for what we're doing. Right. Yeah. Can we? I think we might have skipped over something a little bit, and that is, you know, you talked a lot about um, – brewing. And I think Sean and I were pretty excited about the beer conversation and forgot to ask you, how did you guys pick distilling? Like where did, where did that come from? And, and what is it about distilling that was appealing to you guys from a personal and business standpoint? From a personal standpoint, and this really speaks to the project of the company and just the reason we were so excited is when we, we weren't moonshiners before we had the idea to open a distillery. We had the idea to open a distillery. Very first thing we did was buy a still uh, and start distilling things. And one of the very first things we learned, um, and one of the things that we were just so excited about that really kind of fueled the fire, uh, to get this thing off the ground was how much creativity there was left in the distilling world and reading about what everybody else is doing, how everything is made. Um, it's just so apparent that unlike in beer, where you have to do something that's pretty off the wall to do something that you think is brand new, uh, in distilling, there's really just a ton of unclaimed territory. And I think the very first distillation we did, we bought a six pack of Union Balt Alt, poured it in the still, whisked out all the CO2, uh, put in a cup of red wine and and started it up. And we really, really enjoyed the distillate. Uh, and later we found out that you wouldn't be able to call that anything. And that's one of the reasons people don't do it. But if you kind of, if you just don't care about participating in categories, there's just massive amounts of uh, new stuff. I mean, more than we'll ever get done. I and mean, we have a list of to-do projects that 
might already eclipse uh, our lives, you know, and we just keep adding to it of things that are plausible that we could do that nobody else is doing and doing test batches and all these things. I mean, there's just kind of endless, endless, endless learning, which is unique in any category, right? A place where you can go where there's just a ton of things that haven't been done uh, with creative minded people um, who are interested in doing new expressions. There's just only so many places and I mean, just a very limited amount of places where anything like that exists. So well, it was a very good find. Why do you feel like there is so much white space? Because it's, it's a, it's a exercise that's been around for thousands of years. True. And doing something like beer and wine together is probably not something that's never been done in somebody's basement. Right. right? Uh, and, and probably commonly. So just for fun or as an accident. Um, but in the U.S. until very recently, there was like, you know, 10 distilleries. And until the kind of new craft movement came along, there were, you know, there was like Kentucky and Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. And essentially. More regional areas that have been legendary whiskey producing places. That's, yeah. <clears throat> you know, you go back further and uh, every state had a, yeah. a, a kind of a good culture and it was a lot more like it is now. But the states had really defined identities as well. What's, what do you think's unlocked that? Is it like have the price of stills come down? Like what is the what has made it so much more um, accessible? So I think changing tastes the way, you know, the kind of post-prohibition bourbon boom, the the disappearance of rye. Um, I don't really know what the grain costs were doing in the 50s and 60s and things like that. But uh, just the consolidation of brands really, really just kind of organically wiped away a lot of the kind of smaller culture distilleries. Uh, at least kind of across the country. And I think recently it was essentially just shown that it could be done. And people, you know, now it's kind of fun. You go to a new city, you see what breweries there are, what distilleries there are, which is a very, very new idea. Uh, but a couple of years ago, that wasn't really the case. So when the first person did it, um, you know, maybe it was a novelty, but somebody went through there and was like, you can do this. I think that was our big realization was, this can be done. A distillery, you know, this was, uh, we started working on the business plan a couple of years before the very first distillery came back to Maryland. So it was a long time ago. And the idea itself was a revelation that it could be done. Uh, and it wasn't a massive industrial scale manufacturing plant kind of a thing that it's a, it could exist on a small right. scale. You think that's because there was mystique that it, it was, is it perceived as more difficult than beer making? Or more, it- more of a mystery. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So a little bit more, and since people don't really do it at home and if they do, yeah. they don't talk about it a lot. It's not like home brewing where everyone has a friend that does <laughs> right, it and you've right. had some homemade beer or whatever. Right. I think having homemade alcohol is much more of a novelty and most people don't even understand the process. Right. right. Which you can lean into from a story standpoint, that sort of great magical unknown. And I think a lot of people did exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, there is a lot of, there's a lot of care and delicacy in distilling. So I'm not going to kind of ruin that mystique. Uh, and honestly, a lot of craft brewers don't take that idea that seriously that you should, um, that they should be paying much working so much harder on their craft to create world-class stuff, which is very right. important to us. Um, but still doable. So you, you guys decide you're going to open a distillery. What happens next, you know, business planning. And you mentioned the word moonshining before, like what is it? It's like, Oh, we're going to do it. What, what happened then? So, um, we're moonshining, we're distilling at home, we're dialing in a, a gin recipe that will go on to win, uh, some very prestigious awards on a much larger scale. Uh, but that was entirely dialed in, in, in these kind of moonshining days. Um, 
Shout out to Evergen. And at some point, we've kind of done all the work. We've we've dug as deep as we can into. So we we kind of have gone in as in depth as we can on financial projections, and we've sourced all of the stills. We haven't paid for anything yet, but we, you know, I think we registered a website and um, reserved our Instagram page, and we had talked to our still builder, and we knew what it was going to cost, and we talked to our mash tun guy, and we kind of had uh, a, we stretched out these poster boards on our living room wall. And it was like a war room. It was like uh, there was like pieces of yarn linking one thing to another thing. There were lists of vendors with a bunch of names scratched out. There were curse words around certain people's names um, and curse a words. couple of different banks. Uh, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> I love that Instagram was one of the first things you did. Like that's what is it? That just says like yeah. you guys are thinking the right way and you're Limited thinking how it is right now. It's a commodity. You know? yeah. There's one one of those names. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's like website. Instagram. Hell yeah. Got to knock that down. Yeah. I think you can probably run a successful brand without a website now. Uh, it can be done. Yeah. It can but, be done. Cause honestly, like, you know, there's all the website names are the, the obvious ones have been taken. So you're right. <laughs> yeah. Just, just get an Instagram. Um, if you don't mind me asking, you know, cause some people have gone into some of it. Some of them haven't as, as our guests, the, investment in a still for example what do we what price range are we looking there i mean to say it's variable is not doing it justice Uh, you can i think you could start a professional distillery spending a thousand dollars or less on a still i think it's possible now that's not including like your heating system and stuff but the physical still you could spend a thousand dollars on you could spend uh 30 million dollars on probably Mm -hmm. your guys never looked at those your guys' Um, first workhorse what was that range uh, ours was cheap. Um, this was a huge win for us. We we had it built by really a copper uh, artist who he wasn't really a still builder. He's he had built a couple stills. Ours is the biggest he ever built. Uh, we designed it uh, with him to make it all plausible for mm-hmm. his workshop, right? And we spent under twenty thousand dollars on it. And if we had gotten the same, it's a two hundred and fifty gallon pot still, one hundred percent copper. And if we had gotten the same from one of the famous uh, copper still makers uh, out in the world, uh, I think we'd be looking at something closer to a hundred grand. Yeah, um, that's awesome. There were there are a few things that uh, we realized after the fact that if if that coin flip had gone the other way, we never would have gotten open. Like there just wasn't going to be funding for that. We found things that were so far out of the ballpark of um, what most people pay mm-hmm. uh, that I mean we we opened with like under $5,000 in the bank, right? And that was uh, the bank loan, which we were almost at, right? So we did this thing. Uh, we had everything. I found a location that was plausible. The landlord was into it. And we were at this impasse where the only thing left to do was to pitch it to banks. And then some idiot bank said yes. Um, so we opened with 100% equity. We got this bank loan during build out, blew the whole bank loan, got an extension on the bank loan, and they gave us a line of credit for when we opened, spent the extension of the bank loan, Spent the entire line of credit. I mean, down to the last dollar, just maxed uh, that from the day we opened. Have never, never, never used it uh, for anything but as an extra term loan, right? And if any of these decisions, right, if any of these kind of like miracle angel things hadn't have happened, uh, that day one wouldn't have happened. I mean, we just barely crossed the finish line at all. Um, but I would argue you guys have made your own luck. I mean, just the story we've heard from you and like, you guys aren't afraid to like roll up your sleeves. You got a very DIY attitude. You probably made some of that happen, but yeah, it definitely has to fall your way 
you have to have sometimes, some of stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess the <clears throat> the solutions to any more problems than we already had are not apparent to me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's we've talked to um, a few people who are entrepreneurs as part of what they do creatively, and one thing that might be interesting to listeners is how you guys deal with risk and honestly how that feels, um, because you've obviously described a lot of things and risks that you took and chances you took. So, but you also seem pretty laid back, to be honest. Uh, it's a, you know, it's just been a long day. You start with a light of anxiety and if it just, it peaks at about three in the afternoon when you have your third coffee. Uh, and by now we're, we're nice and relaxed. Um, no, the anxiety is something you, you learn to live with. I think it's kind of like having a child. It's not, at some point you realize that this is just what life is now. And I don't have a child. This is what I imagine. It's like, it's like opening this business where you have some sort of lifestyle that resembles a normal life and then you open this business and things are crazy and your stress level is elevated and you never have a moment that you don't feel like you're kind of involved with work, whether you're physically there, um, you know, really physically working on it or whether you're at home kind of just thinking about the next day and thinking about your marketing strategy and about the hundred things that are on your to-do list that you haven't found room for in six months and all this stuff. And you learn that it's not so much that this just is life now. It is not something that you get kind of over in the short term. Now, maybe there's this future company that kind of where where it's really been built into a big machine and it turns itself and it works while you don't sometimes. Uh, but that is not the small business thing that we're in right now. So we're working towards this thing. But right now, that's like when your child turns 18. Um, in the meantime, our free time is spent raising our child uh, and our time at work is time at work. So there's a few different ways. There's like the physical work of the distillery, just the producing, the bottling, the putting the labels on. We do everything by hand. We built the bar. The, it was only a couple of years ago when I opened my first distillery and I was so thankful that I'd never have to do that again. And I just opened it again. Uh, and it was just as hard this time. There's many obstacles and we still did it very Baltimore Spirits Company-like where we built built the bar, made the design choices feels very much like ourselves, just kind of a slightly more grown up, well put together. Um, Notably upcycling several lots of materials, which kudos to you on that. Yeah. Uh, always, well done. Always trying to creative solutions. You yeah. Know? Um, it looks great. I think part of that's just because we don't know what we're doing. So the ideas we have <sighs> with the resources we have are going to be different than like a designer, right? Like Humility. someone came in here. It's got a vibe. I'm, we though, have good man. taste. Got, well, you you have good taste. You know, at least we've got thing. good got taste, good but taste. no experience, which means the things we're going <laughs> to do taste are just going to be a little bit weird. Uh, but we did pull it off. I really like the feel of the new space. And so then that you're that's this is craft, right? This is quote unquote craft. What it means to be craft. Like, can you talk a little bit about that that, that term? I don't know if you guys like that term. Uh, we don't really like it. Oh, okay. Um, there's such a movement. And it's not just in distilling. When we started talking about the idea of distilleries, the craft distilling movement had not happened in Maryland yet. It was happening in some other places, um, but it wasn't really home to us. And when we started working on it, we really weren't tossing the idea of craft distillery around. And it's not really the long-term vision of the company. Uh, the long-term vision of the company is uh, leaders of the industry, uh, worldwide brands, you know, creative recognition. We want all the big stuff and we do it on a very small level right now, but we take those ideas really, really seriously. We also think that in the craft distilling movement, a lot of consumers, um, 
don't have a ton of trust in it because there's a lot there is some some not amazing product out there craft washing um, what's that craft washing yeah the craft washing of uh of products um artisanal <laughs> yeah so we're a distillery is kind of how we think about ourselves uh we think the big guys and uh i feel like it's a, a decent time to talk a little bit about the difference between the beer movement and the distilling movement right so in the beer movement um, when you opened a craft brewery in the, you know, if you were really early in the nineties or whether you were in the big kind of 2000, 2000 to 10, uh, first of these things, any beer you made was probably going to be better than the big guys, or at least more interesting and probably good enough to have it be pretty palatable, whether you're doing IPAs or brown ales or whatever, they were going to be more interested in the Budweiser, Miller light, Coors light, um, because they were new and they were different, uh, and they were just a style styles that were more, um, you know, to the current taste in distilling the biggest distilleries in the world, at least the ones in, in America, you know, Buffalo trace and all the kind of Sazerac brands makers, Mark, all these guys, these are led by some of the finest whiskey makers in the history of the world. We're not competing with inferior product where we automatically have this space. We're competing with people who have, uh, you know, barrels sitting around from, from before I was born who just have these at their disposal, who are also continue to make incredible barrels that they have the luxury of leaving there for 10 years. Like it's not a thing because they're making money on barrels that their predecessors made already. We're talking about Jimmy Russell um, and other legendary uh, whiskey makers who have built up these brands over decades and decades. So we're not, we don't enter into the game uh, being able to claim a craftier, more experienced, <laughs> like sort of, approach to these things where we take more care and detail we have to find other value as creators um we put in as much effort and as much detail and we have studied so so hard to be what we consider very good at our jobs um but the idea that like we we don't compare an experience uh or breadth of knowledge to to the really really big guys and there's no way that we can replicate exactly what they do so we find our own value points we do new things right that they aren't doing because they're very steeped in tradition but they created the tradition so that's kind of okay that is their genuine expression uh, when we create we have to find other value points new directions to take things new expressions and creative expressions for us to feel like we're adding to the conversation in a positive way um yeah i think I that's that's cool that you're showing this sort of reverence to that you know no you could easily be like nah all those guys they don't know how to do it we're we're, we're a new generation we're bringing this new you know point of view to bear i think i think it's cool that you guys are are paying homage and, and recognizing greatness, but then saying there's room enough for all of us to kind of do our thing. Yeah. And I, I hope there is, uh, I think if you're doing something that's, that's new, that's creative and that's a uh, high level, right. It, it deserves to be done. Um, then, then I think there's probably always room for that. And we think that that's the thing there's a ton of room for in distilling, right. Taking it back to a little earlier, um, now in beer, if you open a brewery, you might be trying to find a neighborhood that doesn't have one yet. And that's kind of your value is tough, this right? neighborhood doesn't have a brewery <laughs> to call their own. And that's kind of your tiny little sphere of newness. Uh, whereas we think we can really offer brand new things to a very large, um, you know, part of the world, hopefully. You're, you're obviously really well versed on the industry and, you know, you, you mentioned some historical stuff earlier and it seems like you're also well read. So I think this next set of questions is really about how have you learned this business and this industry? Is it travel? Is it mentorship? Is it what kinds of things have you done? 
Um, we've been fairly autodidactic about the whole thing. Uh oh, we might have to link to <laughs> definitions. Um, we're so we're self-taught mostly, um, but that's not without using the resources at hand. So uh, we started by reading everything. Uh, I think the very first day the distillery idea came along, we probably dug in on the internet. I was probably up alone in my bed figuring out how stills worked while our still was in the mail, you know? Um, and then we bought at that point, there were like five books on distilling available on Amazon. So we bought, bought all five. We read, you know, everyone read all five. We joined the, uh, American distilling Institute forums, which is the big online forum for craft distilling, which was, uh, still super active at the time. Uh, even if it wasn't really local to Maryland, uh, read all the threads on that. When we had questions about things, they were they were in the book. We were searching for those terms on the forums. We did visit some distilleries. We've actually neither neither myself nor Eli have done the Bourbon Trail in Kentucky. Of all places, we've never never been down to see all these places that I really genuinely do want to go. And hopefully, we've got a, a trip coming up soon. Um, but we did go to some smaller craft places on the East Coast. Called plenty of people. And then also as we were digging into things like grain supply, what sort of things we wanted to produce, we were also looking at a ton of historical stuff. So history of whiskey, history of Maryland rye. Look, you know, there's there's kind of one article in the Maryland Historical Archives that details the history of rye whiskey, which I think every distiller in the state uh, should read. And I think most of them probably have stumbled upon it and at least looked through some of it now. But lists of old brands, when things open, when things closed, the culture of the whole thing was very very cool um but so you know from everything from the maryland historical archives to his to actual history books to production books to moonshining books uh to online forums to calls with distillers to calls with people who used to be distillers um having some people come in and look at our space during build out you know just endless endless stuff and it was just so much of that for a couple of years and then all through build out all while the all kind of during that we were doing our distilling at home, right? So we were really dialing in when we were reading about pot distillation technique and kind of flavor profiles that come out. We weren't just reading about it in a vacuum. We were actively cultivating it. When we were reading about it the next day, we were trying it and seeing if we could kind of identify it. So we started to kind of develop the feel for the skill. And it's actually remarkable how much that little 10 liter moonshine still uh, taught us. And we still use it for test distillations. It's very honest still. So ask, we still- When someone's trying to quote unquote develop their nose or their palate, like- Oh, we also drank everything. I should mention yeah. that as well. Read everything, talked to everybody, visited places, drank it all. Just everything from from cheap whiskey to expensive whiskey to cognac uh, to Armagnac to apple brandies to other fruit brandies to liqueurs to gins uh, to rum. We just drank everything, tried to find exciting bottles. And the more we kind of learned about sherry finishes, we go out and buy sherried scotches and do a flight, flight of sherried stuff and Light of virgin oak stuff, you know, just kind of endless development of that. So to develop one's nose and one's palate uh, as a consumer, I suggest drinking everything. Uh, but talking about it, uh, tasting things with your friends and talking about the notes that you're finding. So, you know, if I find red apple notes in something and I tell that to Eli, he can go looking for it and try and identify what I'm identifying. So you start kind of being able to push each other's uh, identification skills that way. Blind tasting is really intimidating and really, really difficult. I recommend doing it just so you can realize how bad you are at everything. Uh, but definitely do that a little bit. I don't need to do blind tasting to know that. 
no, but it's, it's a lot of things. No, I, it's something that's always uh, been curious. I mean, for me, for me, just to develop that nose and and you know, I was I joined a whiskey sort of whiskey of the month club, Flaviar or whatever, and they sent me vials of you know whatever region of Scotland I defined for that nice. quarter, and you know I tried to follow the little card and 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 they'd tell me what I should be tasting and I mean, that was helpful, but then when you don't continue to do it, it's like any muscle. You're just kind of like, that's eh. the thing. And there's some sort of threshold uh, for anyone listening that just doesn't like hard alcohol. I'm trying to, not sure what I'd relate it to. <clears throat> I'd relate it to an embarrassing part of my past where the same thing happens when you smoke menthol cigarettes, where at first they're terrible, but eventually <laughs> cross the threshold <laughs> and they really become wonderful. Uh, quit smoking. Um, a long time <laughs> don't ago. Smoke, kids. But, uh, <laughs> don't smoke. I quit, but I really did love the menthols. Um, <laughs> Max, let me ask you. I got a. We're, we're surrounded by bottles and bottles of awesome looking stuff, and that definitely makes me thirsty. So, I guess the question is, you know, if you work in an ice cream shop, how much ice cream do you eat? I think you eat a whole lot at the beginning, uh, but eventually, there's enough blending with work, and you you come in from eating ice cream the next day surrounded by ice cream. Eventually it's just, there ceases to be that auto draw. Uh, I think part of the reason you're so thirsty is because you don't have 50 alcohol bottles in your office. Uh, but if you did, um, you probably get used to it. I think we start sorting that out immediately. And we have, you know, I have days it's literally, it's on the schedule up there. You look at 11, nine black Friday release barrel selection. So I know that morning I'm going to come in here not have any coffee in the morning to keep my palate clear. Um, show up a little bit hungry, so no no breakfast. And we're going to taste through nine bottles of rye and choose three for our Black Friday whiskey release. Uh, and I might not want to do that Friday morning. I don't know yet. I really might. But if I don't, it doesn't matter. So you have, you have to drink enough times to, when you don't want to that it really just it makes you kind of really treasure the moments where you're not forced into it. Yeah. That's a good segue. I want to get into the story here. And you are the the head of marketing basically for, for the company. Um, talk to us a little bit about the development of that story and how it executes down into the individual products. Yeah, absolutely. So when I talk about our company uh, and I've kind of uh, nicked our brand story a couple of times in this conversation, but when I talk about it, I, I typically... Uh, we'll say we focus on two things. We focus on uh, old world distillation, open top wooden vat fermenters, copper pot stills, meticulous um, production methods, slow distillation, uh, you know, a lot of things that make our uh, process very arduous, long, um, and and kind of meticulous. And as much as we focus on that, and we do that because we think that if you do those things the, with the kind of time they they actually deserve that that's the way to create the best spirit in the world and those are the the distilleries that we really try and emulate these are the kind of techniques that they use um the other thing we focus on as much as we focus on this old world slow meticulous uh historical style of distillation we focus on new expression creativity um there's kind of a few taglines we throw around from time to time uh i like to use, i like to say we do designer spirits uh, which isn't to say that they're super elite just that they kind of um push the industry in the direction in which it's going right like and that's where we really consider our uh profiles is we want to do things that are new and 
and going in the right direction. So really high level approachable things that people really love if they try that will get people really excited. Uh, the things bartenders get really excited about having these brand new kind of colors to paint with. And we push, uh, we kind of use these very old techniques to create very new forward thinking spirits. So it's a blend of kind of old and new. And that is not something that I could say out loud when I built the distillery. When I built the distillery, I knew we were trying to build a distillery that was emulating these people that we really loved, people that we thought were creating the best spirits in the world and the things that really got us excited, um, which were very historical things. And we just thought there's no way. And, and there's a lot of, I think most American whiskey now is not really made this way anymore. Um, so there's, you know, there's a pretty distinct thing. And I think uh, that it's kind of impossible to replicate as complex and interesting a spirit with some of the new distillation methods versus the ones that we chose to use. And I didn't know that we were trying to create the spirits that push the industry forward when we started creating the stuff. I just knew we were doing what we were excited about. Right. And there's only a handful of us. So there's not a lot of people that say no. There's people that say yes. And especially we've done a lot of projects on the side that we were excited about to do the test batches of that were fun and informative. And we learned a lot, but nothing that we thought was exciting enough to sell, to really get us motivated, get this in a bottle, do the work to get the label on it, get it to market, put some effort in. Um, and those are the projects that don't get done. It's only when we find something that's really, really special that we really need people to try, uh, that that stuff gets into the bottle. So it took me two years. I mean, I knew I needed to be able to talk about the company. This was my first, uh, existential nightmare of running this thing. Um, and not the last. And this was the question that I was constantly revising and constantly dialing in this story and when I started, it was a lot of what are we trying to do? And I knew we were trying to make world-class spirits. And this idea of my company was super broad. And I would, you know, all there were available to describe us were cliches that every other distillery said, because they're nice sounding and there's no regulation. And whether you're trying to do world-class stuff and whether you're really doing it, you know, it doesn't really matter. So we're just kind of tossing around all these cliches and trying to up our own value by talking. Um, but it was when I had enough stuff behind me, when we had done all of the new interesting things when I had seen how it was received by people who really, really know the industry and how excited they got that I got to kind of take a retrospect at our company and not ask, what are we trying to do? But what have we done? Who are we? Right? Like we had a real identity that was created um, just from our own passion. Uh, and I got to kind of look back at that. And at some point um, I really started to see who we were and what we were. And that regardless of whether I could, put it down or not, nothing was going to kind of stop us from being that because that was our personality. And that really was what we were all excited about. And we're not doing historical interpretation of stuff we're doing. Uh, we're kind of, it's always new ideas. And it always has been new ideas, even from our very first distillation in the kitchen, which was a, a whiskey wine commingled distillation that we really loved. And it was always going to be this thing. But it did take me a long time to figure out really what our story was and, and who we were. I needed uh, some time to kind of look back on it rather than look forward on it. How much did the area of Baltimore and Maryland play in it, quote unquote, wet city? Was there the goal to kind of bring all that, that stuff back? I think we were really excited about participating in the history of the whole thing. And in the current incarnation of Baltimore, I mean, I think Baltimore is irreplicable for our project because not only does it have this uh, very long, very storied history uh, for distilling, you know, it's in Maryland, which is really one of the cradles of American distilling. And it's the biggest city in Maryland. It had a massive uh, distillation presence for for the entire time that distilling was happening in the state. 
It also has this super interesting prohibition history, um, book of which, speaking of, I'm always always yeah, learning. I noticed that. Um, sitting on my desk there. So so all that stuff was a, a huge inspiration, uh, and it gets us excited to kind of give something back to the city, especially something that's historical. And of course, all of my uh, arts, you know, kind of formative twenties years spent in the art scene was also a lot about uh, social ability, and we were brewing beer, and there was kind of you know kind of this alcohol culture within the creative culture, certainly uh, something that we're very familiar with and, and have a, a big part of our youth. And, um, and you but, guys, you guys see yourselves as outcroppings of that creative culture here. Yeah, in absolutely. And so I think not only did cool. we have this it's, big historical presence, yeah. we also had this like the new creative energy, which is all about kind of new boundary pushing stuff that like has this big fire in the city. So that kind of definitely influenced our direction and, and our personality because our, our direction is only our personality. You know, we're not businessmen we didn't come from marketing backgrounds so we don't have the kind of i had you know we didn't create the story then create the brand to fit the story it, it just kind of happened it was going to be who it was and we were born from this creative fire so of course this isn't how it was right right you didn't look at that only article. seems obvious now you didn't look at that article that you found in the library about the rye history and try to resurrect an old brand or an old right. civil war general as a nameplate you guys went at your own way true and we invoked the name right we invoked Baltimore Spirits Company. We just stuck it right on there. We want it to be Baltimore for sure. What's the origin story of that? Uh, so originally, uh, but originally we were Baltimore Whiskey Company. So until only a few months ago, everyone knew us as Baltimore Whiskey Company, um, which was actually a nod to a historical first in Baltimore. So Baltimore is known as the city of firsts because so many things happened here for the very first time. There's a great Wikipedia article on it. It's just a list of things that happened in Baltimore first. And one of which I was kind of looking through them back when we were trying to figure out what our company name was going to be. And our, you know, this was probably over a year before we opened. And I stumbled upon the uh, Baltimore Water Company, which almost is a distillery name in itself. And I really thought that maybe I would go with Baltimore Water Company because, you know, O to V, Water of Life, alcohol, it's like always kind of in the. Escobar. Uh, yeah. Um, so, but I decided, you know, a Baltimore whiskey company, it'll be a little nod to the first water municipality in the U.S., um, but more so to the kind of Maryland uh, or Baltimore city of firsts history. Um, and we're, you know, we're doing whiskey and we really, we really had a very clear idea that we were going to do whiskey and we love rye and we had this new mash bill we'd been working on and we we're kind of very excited to do it. Um, and then, of course, for two years, we didn't have any whiskey. So we started making it right away, but we had the gin out and then we have had our kind of smoked apple brandy. We had our barrel rested gin and we had uh, our apple brandy liqueur. And we had all this stuff. None of it was whiskey because we're not rushing the whiskey out. We didn't want to do any white whiskey, which we we just feel like ours is an incomplete product. You know, we have a vision for it. Uh, so we just kind of had it and barrels were sitting around. So every time we go to a festival and had any signage up, we'd get these guys coming up and be like, oh, whiskey. And be like, oh, well, you know, it's gin and smoked apple brandy today. Uh, and they'd kind of give like, uh, and they'd give us a little hand wave and wander <laughs> off. And that got pretty annoying. Um, and of course, every time there was a tour, so they're like, yeah, but so where's the whiskey? You know, we point to the barrels and be like, it exists. It's there. It's just taking its sweet time. Uh, then the whiskey came out and then we, uh, the whiskey came out like right before we were moving. We had already announced we were going to move and we had been pondering this name change for a long time. Uh, so we thought the move, if it was ever going to happen, and it was very clear to us that it really needed to happen. Um, especially since we're sending a lot of our non-whiskey products out to new markets. Uh, so we don't want to introduce the Baltimore whiskey company to 
uh, Chicago and have it be everything but whiskey for, for three years. Um, so we kind of knew, knew that we had this name change, uh, in the works moved, changed our name. And so now there's this tiny little footnote or little asterisks in our history where the only, uh, two years where we'll ever have been called the Baltimore whiskey company was when he didn't have any whiskey. And then we came out with whiskey and everyone loved it. And then we changed our name. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, General story. electric went through the same thing. I think back in the day. Uh, they didn't have electricity at first. <laughs> um, well, that's great, man. Like, um, and then and, and let's get into the specific uh, offerings here, if we can, because each one then has its own story and, and aesthetic. Um, the labels uh, have a story to tell. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about just the projects each one of those were to develop. Yeah, our branding... Um, is super unique. I think a lot of people in the distilling industry uh, do their branding like beer, where they can kind of have a core label or like wine, where you know it's something vineyard and it says it says Pinot Grigio and it yeah. says Chardonnay and it says Pinot Noir. Yeah, it says Viognier and it's whatever. But they all look the same and they're all on brand. Um, and you know, and people might trust the brand and buy the different things. And that's actually how our our branding first existed. We had four bottles. Um, and really three out of four, they were all in the same dark green bottle. And three out of the four were motif, were kind of alterations of the same motif background. And the other one was still the same white on black. It was just a little bit more varied. Uh, but they were, you know, very much in line with one another. And after kind of tasting them with different people and seeing how different people responded to different brands very distinctly, and there was no real pattern except that some people really love mezcal and our mezcal style apple brandy speaks to them and that same person really doesn't like gin and so that doesn't speak to them and we also had people looking at our apple brandy liqueur which is called the 1904 and they go oh you do a, a ginger gin also I'd be like no it's it's not a gin it's a whole different thing it's like a different there's nothing ginny about it um and so there's just massive amounts of brand confusion and our stuff is so, so different. It's not like we're a vodka distillery with a blueberry and a lemon and a regular and all that stuff, yeah. right? There's just so much variation, uh, between our products that it was, that was kind of my, my first lesson. So I'm very, very proud of our branding now. Uh, but it was a learning experience for sure. Well, you follow that same, uh, I guess, process with your Amaros. They, they all... They look like a yes. family. And that's a line. So, so that's you, the yeah. thing is we, yeah, you keep I decided that con the, consistent. Yeah. The brands really just, I needed to do a couple of things, right? And these are all just things that sh you should know beforehand. Maybe you just know them in a different way when you failed at it, but you need to speak to the right person. Um, and you also need to kind of create value. And for me, speaking to the right person with such varied products, it was very clear that I should separate these brands into really distinctly different things, which also gives each one the right opportunity to flourish, right? I mean, we are opening up, uh, we're sending the smoked apple brandy to California this year. We're, I guess uh, this year is really next year probably. Uh, but very early next year, same with the uh, Amaro down to New Orleans um, and, you know, in the gin and everything else to Delaware, right? So they're all kind of taking their own path and they're all going and seeking out their own markets. Um, because they are such distinctly different things that different markets, different, you know, entire parts of the world really call for different things. So we've kind of, I wanted to throw a lot of darts, right? Um, throwing darts in the dark and seeing if one will, one will kind of hit a bullseye, but at least giving every brand its opportunity to really flourish 
as uh, its own valuable asset. Nothing playing second fiddle, nothing as a variation of the first thing, you know, everything uh, as as equal. So uh, the gin has two bottles, our regular and our barreled, co-branded, really distinctly different when you look at them, really easy to tell which one is which. There's three Amaro, but, you know, the Amaro, that's our line. They live together and they are, you know, color coded. So there's three different colors of the brand, but all the labels are kind of physically the same. They're beautiful. They look like books almost. They do look like books, um, which is on purpose. They have a little book binding on the side. A lot of times for my uh, design concepts, I'll kind of uh, latch on to a singular idea and try and expand that into the brand. And once I have the idea, the rest of it comes together pretty quickly. The Amaro is a really obvious one where I started, I just kind of stumbled on book bindings, just really fancy old leather clad books. And I kind of was looking up vintage, you know, doing dumb Google searches once I was into it, like beautiful book binding, enter, you know, and just start, start big <laughs> and dial it in. <laughs> work. Binding's yeah. big deal. Um, binding is a really big deal. And a lot of my, a lot of my designs are kind of taken from a very old historical uh, thing that has really nothing to do with a bottle branding um, and then kind of those things have so much history and so much development that I, I'm able to kind of take this highly developed, very, very cool and interesting, uh, you know, something worthy of collection. You know, I think it's, that's kind of one of the things is I'm a big collector of things. And when I get excited about something, whether it's like, I spent two years excited about raw denim and I learned everything there was to learn about raw <laughs> denim and bought the best, pair of pants I go by, um, you know, any, anything like that, anything where like people get nerdy about it and get into details and all of these kind of historical branding things have this such a long history. There's so much to learn about and get excited about, uh, that it's cool to take that history from something that really doesn't belong on a bottle and, and kind of mess with it so that it will work because it's going to create something super unique and new in the bottle, which is exciting. Um, which is a weird, way that creation works a lot of in our spirits as well when we kind of take the mezcal tradition and try and blend it in this brand new way with apple brandy and they don't really have anything to do with one another and you kind of see how you can get these things to overlap so for the you know for the shot tower gin branding we we kind of used uh vintage prohibition era women's fashion catalogs as a big inspiration for for kind of the flow of the whole thing um Loaded question here. What's more important, the bottle or the label? Oh, the, well, the branding is the same. It's the same, right? That's uh, I start with bottle shape, but I've ne- I never start developing the label until I have the bottle picked up. Um, hmm. That's 100% true. So I don't develop one and then put it somewhere. Uh, I think you kind of develop them as a package. You know, the shape, the layout of everything. I don't think you can just create a a square label and put it on different bottles. It's got to fit. You have um, some really great artwork associated with Epic Rye. Can you just tell us the sort of, maybe use that as an example of start to finish because it's such an important offering and it's got beautiful branding. So can you just tell us that story? Yeah, that one started with the name. Uh, that was that was the really, really hard part of that. And uh, the name Epic really embodies the brand. And once we had it, there was a lot to work on. Um, but I think we spent six months working on the name. And I think we start, we spent six months because we started working on the branding essentially when it should be ready, or at least kind of you should be in it. So we're like, all right, I got to get on this branding thing. So the first thing we got to do is 
is pick a name. And uh, we just couldn't get one. We looked at just everything. Uh, Baltimore is also known as the city that reads, as you uh, yeah, may know. Very well. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so we went with, we were, we were playing around with Reader's Rye for a while. It might it may have had a picture of the bench on the front that said the greatest city in America. Oh, cool. Cool. Uh, but when all these things clashing taglines there though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um so so we, you know, we we kind of would would get some that we thought were okay. At some point <clears throat> we thought Row House Rye might be the thing because row houses are just such an integral part of the Baltimore City experience. You know, this whole city is hallways. Mm, that one's uh, kind of sticky. Um yeah, yeah Row House Rye. Yeah. Uh, it, it was pretty nice. And I thought, you know, the, there were some really easy branding ideas that you could pull from that and kind of how the label would look. But of course, there's a Row House Distillery. We found out there's like a mm. one man operation in Pennsylvania huh. called Row House Distilling. Yeah. And, and we were all bummed out and kind of started over. And then, of course, we went through about 50 names that none of us liked. And at some point, I woke up in the middle of the night and wrote a list of 20 names and then went back to bed because I was just like, we were oh, so stressed out about finding a name. Went to, you know, next day, we. Uh, go back to the distillery, read through them. Same thing, right? Mostly crossing them off the list. And at some point we had it dialed down to like four or five names. And I was just like, okay, I'm just going to decide on something in the next day or two and, <clears throat> and get on it. Cause we were starting to hit the limit of it's only a few months till the release. And if you don't send something to the government soon, it may not make it, which would have been a problem for us. Now in this partnership is, are you feeling the most pressure as the marketing guy? No, I don't think so. I think we all feel our own unique brands of pressure. I meant for that particular project. Like for this project, the, the name is on me at the end of the day. Well, I certain there's a lot of, I definitely put a lot of pressure on myself for things like that. Um, but I don't know. It must, I think it's probably really stressful also to not have your hands in it. You know, when it's that project, you know, Eli had to sit there and watch me not pick a name for four months. Well, that, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's a different kind of stress. Jesus, um, man. Just I know. And he'd, he'd have always be willing to talk about it and he'd throw <laughs> things out and he'd come in and be like, I really like Reader's Right. I think we should go with Reader's Right, you know? And I just kind of like, no, just not, get away from me. <laughs> not committing to it. So I think that even care? was his own. Yeah. And, and, and he's here, you know, Sweating and busting. Yeah, he's doing the, the other thing. He's trying to make sure, making like, this whiskey, tasting it. He knows comes it's coming. He's just like, it needs a bottle. <laughs> um, so, diff different stresses, but um, you know, part of the reason it was so hard is because I, I really did feel a lot of pressure to nail it. Uh, we spent so much time and effort on this whiskey, and then one day, and then so, so in this kind of era of there's four names left, I got to choose one. I'm giving myself a couple of days, and I'm probably a couple of days past what I really told mm -hmm. myself. I give myself. Um, I think I literally walked in one morning and I was like, we're, we'll call it Epic, which wasn't on the list at all. And I was like, yeah, Epic, E-P-O-C-H. It's perfect. It says everything I want to say. I Googled it. There's no other Epic whiskey out there. You know, I like, <laughs> like done, just like thought of it in the morning. And a lot of it was, I, I kind of re, and I had done this a lot. The idea that I did this one time and Epic came out of, it's not really true, but I did once again, refocus, go back and say, what am I trying to say with this branding? What is this rye? What does it mean? Um, and I thought a lot about the history of Maryland rye, the history of rye in Baltimore. This is the first rye distilled in Baltimore in about 75 years. Um, and we thought it was really, but not only kind of a special product, but we thought it was special for the city to have this back. Um, and it was that kind of conversation I'd had with myself a million times that really bore me the name uh, Epic, right? Was I was like, it's a new age. Yep. It's a new kind of era of the stuff. And Epic uh, is just kind of a really strong uh, phonetic name, right? Get some like really nice hard consonants in there. 
It's a lovely homonym, right? We can throw epic parties. I love and, it. I think it works. Yeah, really, and it really kind well. of has this, you know, the tagline for the yeah. rye, which was very natural, is it's the new epic of Maryland rye, or the new epic of Baltimore. I forgot how how to say it, but and we really kind of believe that this is the new day. Yeah, it's yeah. back. It's here. The Maryland rye is uh, back, and it's in Baltimore, and thus begins this kind of new reverence for our creative culture that we were kind of excited. Conceptually, it's on point. Um, and so is the bottle. And then, so now did you have a partner that um, helped design that? We partner with Gila press, which I, I give them, you know, the vast majority of credit in our, in our branding. So they take all of my, uh, ideas and make them look like good ideas is what happens. Um, that's what brilliant craft designers do. Yeah. They're, they're really, really good. Uh, so I actually had once, once I had the name, I actually, had the shape of the label. I picked out the bottle because I never get them to work on anything until I have the bottle uh, because it's got to fit, right? And it's just kind of, I think it should just be designed all together. So I had the name. I had already asked for a million sample bottles. You can see behind me I actually have some more since the last time you visited. Um, but the first thing I do when I'm working on a branding project is uh, ask every bottle distributor for an annoying m- uh, number of samples. And I'm... Uh, always going to disappoint almost all of them because I can only choose the one. Are you running out of goodwill Um, there? I don't, I'm not really really sure. (laughs) You know, when they come in and say, yeah, it's just because I just (laughs) haven't liked any of the bottles yet. Um, (laughs) Make what I like. Then we'll talk. Uh, So stared at the bottles, um, found one that I thought was completely gorgeous, um, had the right, kind of feel for for the attitude that I wanted our whiskey to put out um, and that uh, nobody nobody kind of had claim to. You know, there's there's some where you look and you're like, oh, that's the few whiskey bottle. I know that one. And of course, you could brand them very differently and you could really use it as your own, but it's nice to use something that kind of you can make claim on it. Um, so we found a bottle that's not used uh, a ton. It's actually Wild Turkey uses it on one of their uh, very rare editions, but they have like a glass turkey blown into it on the side so it's like a slight alteration but it's the same bottle i'm pretty sure uh and i loved it so i brought it in uh started working on you know the cap size on the side of it which the cap size uh actually is a a tiny bit my process there is that we had about 400 empty whiskey bottles lining the shelf of the distillery lining the all the windowsills which there are there were a lot of them in the old place and so i would just take whenever i was doing branding i'd walk down and i'd take out corks from uh from each one of them and stick them in there and be like, that one fits. That one doesn't, that one doesn't. I like, <laughs> and I'd like get one that I thought looked good. And then I would measure it and send the measurements to uh, my, my bottle producer or my cap producers. Um, so that one, I literally just would take 400 corks and stick them in there until I liked the way one sat. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I love all the day. choices. I mean, just the, the, you know, the engraved printing, you know, a little bit of the metallic. Um, I even like the uh, embellishment on the post embellishment of the glass, but not glass. Detail. It's not, it's not real glass. Yeah. The, the big secret of our custom glass bottle is that that's actually a clear plastic sticker. I don't encourage anyone at home to try and peel theirs off. Uh, Cause it will never look the same again. It's awesome. And you're never going to know. And I also want to ask you to please keep that detail a secret. So we can track listeners who are in the know about that little, I'll detail. know where they got it. Yeah. 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 So, Absolutely. Um, so you have the bottle. This thing looks amazing. We're pretty, we're pretty psyched and about what's going to go in it. Do you ever take it to, you know, like do some like reconnaissance at a, a liquor store or something and kind of like see where, how it's going to sit amongst competitors on the shelf? Um, 
<clears throat> I have taken a bottle to a bar and put it on the back thing to make sure I could read the label. You know, we have this kind awesome. of dark gold on our on our epic yeah. label. And I just wanted to make sure that that I felt comfortable with its legibility because the original Shot Tower gins, that was uh, it's a branding problem that the word Shot Tower was too small. Mm. Even bartenders didn't realize what it was called. They thought it, yeah. they were just like, oh, it's the Baltimore one. There's, um, so you don't think about it. It's a bunch of little mini billboards back there that you kind of are yeah, scanning 100%. with your eye and you want it to, you know, hit really fast. And that, you know, the unique shape helps in that yeah. as well. Uh, our label layout is kind of its own thing as well. Um, so it all goes in there. Uh, but, you know, I took I basically took a word to Gila Press um, and I I knew the shape of the word that I wanted. Uh, and I guess uh, so the artwork artwork behind me are the five rejected epic labels that they gave back and they gave back a sixth one, which was a lot like the one in the middle, but inverted uh, white to black. Um, and that was the closest one. And it was pretty clear which direction we were going there. And that actually used to sit at the top of the bottle. And I had one of the paper cutouts with it. And at some point I had had it like taped there for a while and I just, and I moved it down and put it on the bottom half of the bottle instead. And I was like, Oh, it goes down here. Nailed it. Um, mm. So I moved it down. We had the seal and the label inverted actually in the original uh, thing. So, you know, a lot of it's really tactile, um, hands-on stuff, moving paper things around. I always get paper, you know, cutouts of labels first to put them on bottles and stare at them for a while. No, man, you guys obsess um, the details why of, of your craft and and the actual manufacturing of what you do why wouldn't you obsess that part i mean we, that, we definitely don't want anyone to look at our label and have yeah. and have to have me talk them into the value on the inside yeah. because there's no value on the outside so we certainly learned that lesson early and we want to make sure that um the inside pays off right it's never a disappointment but we want to set the expectation really high with the branding all right man you guys are on track with that one congratulations yeah on that's that. a beautiful bottle so max at the end of the day this show is very utilitarian you know, our audience hopefully is coming here to not only learn about your story, but then also learn the actual uh, steps that they could take to maybe get into this industry um, as a whole. So whenever they turn off this podcast, whether it's at night or in the morning and they get out of bed, what are the first three to four things that they're doing? And they can be granular. Everybody said different things. They can be very highbrow and just like, get your mind right, or go follow this guy on Instagram. So I want you to kind of consider that for a moment and then uh, let's hear them. Yeah. Um, the three things I would do or that I think are important to do if you're trying to really get in my industry, right? If you want to do uh, craft distilling, for lack of a better term, small scale distilling, big scale distilling, distilling, creating spirits. Um, the first thing I would do, the very first thing uh, to do is just read everything. Read it all. Uh, there's just a very finite amount of books and literature available. Those things are really, really easy. A lot of them are tailor-made to people who don't know a lot about it. So just don't be intimidated by it. Go read everything. It's the very least you could ask of yourself if you think that you will end up making great things. Uh, do your due diligence really early uh, and just go into it with as much knowledge as possible. And that includes drinking everything. Reading and drinking are the same thing as I learned in college. I like it. Like um, it. <laughs> that's it's a good industry Holy to be in. <laughs> we just found our stinger yeah. quote. Yep. There you go. Um, number two, uh, get your hands dirty, do some stuff. Uh, if you've never brewed beer, maybe brew beer, or ferment some cider, or ferment some wine, but get into distilling, 
go to, go to distilleries to see it, read the books, make sure you're, you know, not an idiot and know how to not blow up your house. It's not that hard. Um, and distill something. You really just can't expect to walk into a building one day and flip a switch. The skills you develop by making mediocre stuff, um, are important. You know, the artists all start bad. And the one thing that separates them, uh, what kind of good artists from bad artists is good taste. So you're, you're drinking by reading and reading by drinking, uh, that stuff should really inform your taste. You should have a really clear identity of that. Um, and then when you're distilling things and they're not amazing, you should be able to tell yourself that, which is why it's important to understand what great spirits are and kind of do your due diligence in that era, uh, kind of as well. Um, so distill stuff, learn what you're good at, learn what you're not bad at, develop the taste, at least get a functional knowledge of this happens when the still gets hot and this stuff comes out and I like this and I don't like that. And what am I doing wrong? Cause these are the kind of things you'll always be dialing in. If you are passionate enough to start your own business, that you're passionate enough to kind of care about your own mistakes and develop your skill. And that can be done on really small scales. And it's really, really important that you get that stuff under your belt and the more, the better. Uh, so if you can't get a job at a distillery, uh, I'm not actively advocating for anything illegal. Um, but you know, Figure out a way to do some distilling. That's all I'm saying. Send you resumes for internships. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and number three, and I and I really do think this uh, is important, is when you start your company, uh, always be trying to stay true to who you are, regardless of whether you know. You should always be trying to figure out who you are, what your identity is, what you're offering. Uh, we only do things in genres even that we feel like we've got something to add. And if you're going to start something, and you know, distilling is not as empty a space as it used to be. Uh, I still think there's a ton of room for more companies. Um, but it's not like just being a distillery is a novelty anymore. Uh, so we're, we're done with that. I firmly believe we're done with that. And now you need to come out and say something. And there's a lot left to be said, which is what I was talking about early. So know what you want to say and really don't compromise on that. Because once you compromise... It becomes a lot harder to tell anyone why they should care about your brand uh, compared to what everybody else is doing. Uh, and the brands that are doing well and the brands that are interesting are not just marketing stories. You know, it's not just Mila Kunis stamping a barrel as some sort of ploy. It's people who really do have something to say and they're saying it and they're saying it very clearly. Uh, and I'm really grateful that I'm starting to uh, understand how to make my product speak and also how to talk about my company in a, in a way that I believe is honest and authentic and also genuinely uh, interesting. Uh, so you should always be trying to refine those questions. I think it's the most important part about um, marketing yourself. And when I'm talking about marketing yourself, I mean picking up a distributor and walking into a liquor store by yourself and trying to get them to pick you up and any kind of sales and guiding a tour through your facility. You're trying to get these people to understand what you're trying to say. And sometimes it's really not that obvious, but you should just obsess over this question, dial it in. And once you kind of know the answer, um, you should really commit to it and run all your decision-making through it and make sure that you're not compromising your vision and your identity um, to, you know, cut a dollar off a bottle or something. You know, and feel like That's there's always advice. better solutions. Absolutely. And so then the last thing, I just have a question man. in terms of the community, you know, the distilling community, um, what kind of role does that play 
you know, other distillers locally in the state. I mean, do you guys feed off that? Do you vibe off that? Is it welcoming? Is it? Yeah, super welcoming. So I can, I can speak to Maryland. Um, we're one of the founding members of the Maryland Distillers Guild, uh, which when we started, I think there were six of us in the guild. And is that a source of information for people? By Absolutely. The way, back from there's actually, uh, there's a website resource link and there's, we hold seminars on how to start a brewery or a distillery um, that are all set up uh, through a company that kind of helps manage the the brewing and the winery and the distillers guild in the state. Nice. That's like a um, bonus creative. How absolutely, uh, man, I put you guys with some people. Um, it's a super su- supportive community. I don't think anybody feels like there's so much competition where there's any sort of antagonism. We do events together. Mar- uh, November, uh, which is when this is being recorded is the very first Maryland spirits month, uh, which will be an annual uh, supported by the state celebration of Maryland distilling, which is uh, really fantastic to have back to have enough distillers to to have right. uh, kind of state yeah. support uh, and acknowledgement is really cool. Um, anybody in the state would probably be happy to talk to anybody. I have distillers, uh, I, I should say, uh, potential distillers and uh, industry interested people uh, come through at least once a month to pick my brain about what to do, what not to do, who we got what from, what do we think is important? You know, we're thinking about opening here. Do you know these guys? And I think everybody in the state would be willing to do that. And started with six people in, in 2016, I think, when we, no, 2015, uh, it was founded. And now I think there's over 25 members. Wow. Uh, and over 20 of us are already distilling. So it's it's a pretty blossoming community. A lot of support from the big guys to the little guys. I can call up the president of Sagamore and, um, and ask him for advice on some top sourcing and he will take the time of day. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's really kind of top to bottom, just a very supportive. Awesome it's nice community. to hear. Yeah. It's nice to hear. Well, Hey man, thanks. Um, I think that about does it right. And uh, good luck. We're looking forward to black Friday. I know I am personally. Yeah. Um, save, save us four bottles two each. Figure out how to lock that Do thing that. down. And uh, look, we're going to be big fans tuning you guys on and I'm sure you're going to see us poking around here. Um, just to hang out in a mo- more unofficial capacity. <laughs> You'll probably see Sean a lot. I'm going to guess. See you tomorrow, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> So, Max, can you uh, tell everybody where to find you guys on the web and uh, social? Yes. Uh, all our social links are now at Balt Spirits Co. Our website is baltimorespiritsco.com. And you can always email me direct at max at baltimorespiritsco.com if you want to chat it up. I always love answering emails. Uh, keeps me from doing other stuff. <laughs> Fantastic. Great way to end it. Thanks, and Max. And come see us at the Union Collective, the physical distillery, which we have yet to mention that this place exists. Uh, this is about you guys. So oh, we yeah. just <laughs> forgot. So we just moved. Brand new facility. Where are we? An excellent tasting room. The Union Collective is this very cool uh, multi manufacturer, consumer facing space with a coffee roastery and an ice cream. Uh, Charmery, I suppose they'd want me to call it. Um, a climbing gym, Union Brewing, a really amazing uh, brewery here in town. And we're all in the same building. We all have these consumer-facing sides. It's this really excellent creative scene with this really unique concept of being manufacturing-based. So come see us at the new Union Collective. Find it on Google. Uh, we're open Wednesday to Sunday. Amazing. All right, man. Take care. Cheers.
Wow, Max Lentz, clearly a very passionate guy. And it was great to interview somebody who the driving force behind their business is creativity. And even more interesting when you think that's uh, that business is spirits. Just a great conversation and getting a peek behind the curtain here. But as always, folks, check out the show notes. Much more about Max and his operation at creativehowpodcast.com. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram, creativehowpod. Hey, Jed, did you hear our kick-ass intro music? Shockingly, that's out of our technical wheelhouse here at Creative How. That type of sick sound design is a White Noise Lab original. White Noise Lab is a music composition and sound design studio that works with agencies, production companies, and brands on projects for film, broadcasts, interactive websites, corporate videos, video games, and experimental projects. The chances that that movie trailer you just saw on you know, YouTube that's probably a White Noise Lab original more often than not. So whether you're looking to fulfill your sound design needs or simply need someone to collaborate with on an experimental project or maybe an experimental podcast, check out whitenoiselab.com. That's whitenoiselab.com.